there would be very few people qualified to speak an epigraph for Nietzsche. Um, but I, I more so than Bataya am one of those people. And then in the simple nature that I have undergone and underwent a journey that is Nietzsche's journey, right? That is, that is the journey of the shaman without a culture, without a community, without a society, without a world. That is a journey that's underwent in the, the, the pure darkness of absolute solitude. Um, and we'll speak, I guess, just briefly here about Nietzsche, this, this relationship with his family, the distance, and obviously the relationship with his sister and the, uh, kind of the, the Christian kind of moral hole or hold of the family, his, his sister, who was obviously a, a fascist and anti-Semite, um, who continually tried to control and appropriate his works and his intelligence. Um, there are these ways, right? There's, there's almost this community, I would say Nietzsche, Arto, and Van Gogh that I'll speak of now. And I'll speak of them because I can't write anymore. Um, it's just, it's not that it, it doesn't reverberate or resound enough. It has to be spoken. And this is the same way as just effectively standing over their graves and understanding, right, that these lives, the, the lives of Nietzsche, Van Gogh, and Artaud specifically, are these lives that are lived in a abyss, and in an abyss of worldliness, um, shallowness, uh, surfeit, the surface level concerns of uh, manipulation and control of power, of people, of resources, of wealth, and the day-to-day the -day goings, goings on, which um, Mayakovsky terms, right, the bit, or the it translates to the everyday. Um, Ann Charters and Ginsburg speak about this in a series of lectures about Mayakovsky, and you can see this in the past of these lives, um, Mayakovsky obviously becoming very involved in the revolution, becoming a figurehead of the revolution, and then this falling out. Um, one of his biographers says, uh, uh, Mayakovsky entered the revolution as if it was his own home or walking in through the front door of his own house. And there was nothing after the revolution. We understand that after the revolution, there was Stalin. There was a a vacuum of power and then the vacuum of power was filled with the figurehead of power right or the um uh, the eternal return of fascism is probably the most accurate way to describe the eternal return in terms of a human context or a political context and we see this with nietzsche at the at the end of his life coming into a spiritual or philosophical place of enlightenment where he recognizes himself as oneness wholly identified with oneness. I am all the names in history. And yet, right, nothing has changed. And this this doesn't mean that all of a sudden Nietzsche comes into community, right? Where they we're not this there is no cultural or philosophical there's no cultural context for this. There's no communal context for this. And so when it happens, and again, when there is that descent into 
you can't even call it divine mania again because there's no context for what Nietzsche went through. There's no real context for what Artaud went through, but what we have to think of Nietzsche as the archetype for this happening because it is a philosophical unfolding, as in a deepening of knowledge. Artaud and Van Gogh, there's this element of the madness, but the madness is expressed in art. With Nietzsche, this is a, this is a soul level knowledge. This is a becoming insofar as he becomes this knowledge. It's not, this is not for some sort of intellectual fashion. This is a revolution and evolution of the soul that is happening in real time and documented obviously in, in the, in Nietzsche's papers. Um, this solitude that you hear expressed in Zarathustra and you can read you can read about this in the, in the biography by Julian Young is that he did not have true friends he did not have true lovers um it's it's suffice to say that his 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 spiritual knowledge not only separated him from the rest of the world but put him in in this in this position that he was already in i would i would argue is that this position of extreme uh, emotional and spiritual openness vulnerability in the sense that um you get the Rumi quote um break your heart open again and again and again until it opens or something like that. Um, this was Nietzsche's state of existence. And he looked around, as I look around in this world today, he looked around uh, over 100 years ago and had this this similar realization and pronouncement that there, there was no world that was ready for any of the things that he had to say. Um, any of the spiritual realizations or any of the spiritual knowledge that idolatry, ego, flattery, um, superficiality, all of these, just, it's, it's the nonsense. And the, he obviously saw this in the, in the academic world. He saw this in the, uh, the pseudo intellectual culture around him, this mad, mad struggle for superiority, this mad struggle for control. And when, I, when I'm speaking about Nietzsche here, the, the archetype is really just a, is a stand-in for where, where I stand. I, I don't stand anywhere different than Nietzsche stands. Um, you go on the philosophical journey and you look up and you realize that the people who are claiming to have gone on this journey or who are selling this journey, right, or who, who are commodifying it or teaching it or whatever is just there's no real knowledge of it because if, the, if there was real knowledge of it they would not be in the place where they were selling their knowledge for a cost or um in in the in the, in the academic sphere uh, teaching wrote text um or even teaching under an institutional head um they would be in the place that Nietzsche was in.
which is to say being at a loss for the world. There's just no... There was no place for Nietzsche in German society or in the world at large. And now there is a place obviously made for Nietzsche, right? That the table is set for Nietzsche's ghost or whatever, right? In the, in the, in the way that it is almost a spitting on his grave in the sense that now Nietzsche is taught, right? Or Nietzsche is canonized or there is this idea that Nietzsche's knowledge now holds weight, right? And it's, it's too late. It, it, it always was too late. And part of the shame of it is that it took so long for him to even climb out of just the, the shit, the mud that was German culture, right? Or, or Western culture at the period of time in which he lived, late 1800s, whatever mid-1800s, to climb out of the shit of this culture and to say something with, with true philosophical depth, with true spirit, with true soul, precisely because he had undergone that journey within himself and thus had something truly to say. Not this, not this nonsense of the uh, political right and wrong or the social right and wrong or the squabbling over culture, the, the madness which consumes the entirety of the cultural sphere today and has since Nietzsche's time and before. So when, when you discuss Nietzsche's madness, right, there's, there's again, more nonsense, more just bile. Um, Oh, the, the madness was because, because of a uh, neurological condition or it was because of a uh, sexually transmitted disease or whatever, whatever kind of stupid stand-in or conspiracy theory that people want to use to describe his madness. But you have to understand, you cannot actually begin to diagnose. You cannot actually begin to symptom, uh, to symptomatize Nietzsche's condition. without real and true knowledge of that condition. And it's not a neurosis. It's not a psychosis, right? The, the difference between divine mania and madness is, and the difference between what Nietzsche underwent and those two terms is a, is a gulf. And with Nietzsche's madness, what you describe it as is a madness of complete sanity. Perhaps sanity for the first time in recorded human history. Sanity in the way that you cannot even describe the sanity of the, the Buddha or the Dalai Lama or Jesus Christ, right? That the, these, these figures that believed whatever kind of nonsense about like the, being incarnate in this world and values of uh, peace and morality, right? This, the, this whole idea of um, what nonviolence, right? These, these concepts, right, which have nothing to do with the, not only the cosmic reality, but just the, the, the lived life of the human being. They're these abstract concepts, which are, which are called virtues, right? And again, Nietzsche sees this in his record of virtue and morality. Um, and 
you get to this point, right? Similar to the 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 Kafka problem in the in the the parable described by Arendt, I think in her in her book Between Past and Future is the first essay. It's it's an impossible circumstance. It's an impossible condition. And Nietzsche's enlightenment is very different than the enlightenment of Christ and Buddha in the sense that this is not you don't you don't have the ex experience of of oneness right or the experience of nirvana or whatever and it's just like you sit in the bliss of the sage and just have your body melt away and and die um or sit and just offer i was gonna say offer aneurysms but offer analogs right and these these the parables or stories whatever to compensate for this human condition or otherwise expose this human condition to people the nirvana is the revelation of the human condition itself it's in the intersection of the spirit and the flesh as in the fundamental paradox of existence of life itself entering into that paradox is to enter into the present moment the originary moment the moment of now which echoes throughout everything at all times creation is and insanity and to live in the truth of the insanity amidst th this so-called right this world of the everyday the bit right My mayakovsky this this world of the everyday which is so 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 deeply insane in its claim to sanity that with with Mayakovsky, the heart is the heart is open, the heart is burst open in the very nature of the inability to establish a real boundary or a real border. That that this creation is is at one and pulsing and throbbing like a cosmic heart. Um, how can you how can you live in that? And there's no right. We're ta talking about like these ideas of peace, right, or settling down and and living a life, whatever kind of absurd kind of cultural standard of life that is there is only the, the the madness of creation the fire of creation um and you see this in uh in Nietzsche's life as well as Mayakovsky's life as well as obviously with Van Gogh and Artaud is that there's this theme of that there's nowhere to turn um and I think you get you get this sense that with the creative genius, you can include Kierkegaard in this category. With the creative genius, there is a clarity, and and the clarity rises up above the culture. And it rises up above the bios, right? I've used the term culturalist bios to signify the things that are ultimately binding and the nonsense of their bindage and bondage that doesn't in fact exist at all. The nature of the creative genius is to view these things from above and to create from that higher place a greater world. And you, Nietzsche's books, right? These are a greater world. They're not just talking about a greater world. They are a greater world in their practice. Nietzsche lays down lays down these books. Van Gogh lays down these paintings. Artaud, the multimedia, whatever, right? Mayakovsky, the poems. These greater worlds are being laid down, and yet there is this infantile consciousness that is not even capable of seeing them or observing them properly, other than in a 
sort of delayed eulogy that views them in a half light and speculates on them and uh, theorizes on them. And you lose the humanity of the works because the, the human was defiled in its life. I mean, the statues of Mayakovsky now, what do those really mean? The deification of Mayakovsky by the nation, it's just like the, the creative genius of the spiritual revolution and Charters calls Mayakovsky's work a spiritual revolution, which goes beyond the attempted political revolutions of his time. And these things were just not seen, observed, or acknowledged because precisely because of the lesser minds that were viewing them. And we can't avoid this as much as, right, we have this, this, this ridiculous idea of virtue and like, whatever these these christ and kind of buddha tenets right of um like equality or morality or um this kind of treating human existence like a oneness it, it is but it's not and so with nietzsche right you you leave the academy because there's nowhere to go um you do whatever there is because there's nowhere to go um there is, in the, in the true sense, there is no space in human society for great minds. And by great minds, I mean truly original minds. Van Gogh, Nietzsche, Artaud, Mayakovsky. Precisely because anywhere these great minds go, there is a jealousy, an envy, a resentment. And what that is, is it goes back to the Dostoevsky quote. It's the, uh, the evil that no socialist physician can diagnose in humanity. The, the evil is just petty. It's petty and it's small. Right? And so you get this. Nietzsche wants to, wants to come, come back to the village, right? And he wants to tell the village about what he's seen, right? They can, they're not even capable of listening to him. You have these these you have Artaud writing about Van Gogh as as Van Gogh is kind of the archetype for him or the surrogate for him, and Van Gogh's treatment by his psychiatrist, Van Gogh's treatment by his doctor, Artaud's treatment by his doctors, in the sense that there are these people, I mean Lacan included with Artaud, that were so jealous, jealous, envious, whatever word you want to use of their creative genius. That it blinded them and effectively they did whatever they could to tear down or strip that genius away. And so you see what these thinkers all have in common is that, I mean, Tol Tolstoy, or I mean, sorry, Lenin or um, Trotsky, reading Mayakovsky are not even capable of acknowledging Mayakovsky's creative greatness because it stands in the face of their own ineptitude, which is to say that Lenin and Trotsky did not realize a fraction of what Mayakovsky realized in his lifetime in terms of the revolution of the spirit. Wagner did not realize a fraction of what Nietzsche realized in his lifetime in terms of the revolution of the spirit. Lacan did not realize a fraction 
of what Artaud realized in his lifetime in terms of the revolution of the spirit. And we could we could go on here. And so this is this is the true nature of creative genius in the world of human beings. And this is important because it needs to be said is that creative genius in the world of the human beings is not tolerated and cannot be tolerated precisely because it shows the human being its own lack. The resentment that is created in the very presence of creative genius around others or around anyone is the resentment that is human, right? And you have to say human in a, in an apotheosis here. It's a, um, the, the, the human all too human, or it's just the petty. It's the, it's the drama. It's the, the desire for power. It's the desire for control. It's the desire for uh, ego dominance. It's the desire for to be seen as the utmost or the best or the one that is ruling. And so, and what these, what these creative geniuses have in common, Artaud, Nietzsche, Van Gogh, is that this is not, this is coming from an, a spiritual place. This is not coming from the materialist or hierarchical social and political paradigm, which is seeking to submit everything around it. It is not only remarking upon that paradigm, but transcending it in its creative genius. And yet you get, you get the interaction of the paradigm with these works and the paradigm is not actually able to see them. It's going to claim that it is incorporating them or that Nietzsche is now part of the canon or that Van Gogh is considered to be one of the greatest painters in the Western tradition. You can't, these, these, these works and these lives cannot, cannot actually be incorporated into this paradigm of culture precisely because they transcend the paradigm of culture itself in their critique of it, and not only in the critique of it, but in the creative genius that transcends it. And you get a figure like Van Gogh that emerges out of a historical paradigm of Michelangelo's and da Vinci's, right? Who, who, are, who are right there. You can't use the term creative genius. You can. But the life of Michelangelo and da Vinci are lives that are submitted to the culture, submitted to do, to do the work of the political families of the culture. And that's not any fault of theirs necessarily, right? We're not like blaming people here or what, whatever <laughs> kind of ridiculous notion, but Van Gogh again, uh, in, in large part due to the, uh, the, the support of his brother, lived a sovereign life. Nietzsche, the support of his friends and family towards the end of his life, lived a sovereign life. Artaud, <laughs> his madness and his institutionalization, lived a sovereign life. Mayakovsky, his support from the state and then his disavowal lived a sovereign life. The disavowal is the sovereign life. The moment at which the politics of his time stopped, his, the need of his own soul transcended anything that the paradigm or the cultural politics of his time could possibly afford him. 
that was the moment. And those are the moments in which you can see in Mayakovsky's poetry, he was truly sovereign and became truly sovereign. And that's what killed him. Van Gogh's sovereignty killed him. Nietzsche's sovereignty killed him. Artaud's sovereignty killed him. And it is precisely because these figures were so great, were so great in their creative genius, in their capacity, their capacity to experience the spiritual, their capacity not only to experience it, but to create from that place. And here we're not, we're not talking about a tradition of monks. We're not talking about a tradition that, that glorifies the, the moment of enlightenment that all of a sudden it's over. We're not talking about a, a tradition of a devotional practice, right? And this is not, this is not to say, well, it is to say um, that th th these people are better than that. These are, these are people in human history that did not stop at Nirvana. And you could, you could argue about Artaud and Van Gogh and Mayakovsky as people who maybe had experiences or glimpses of the oneness. But you see at the end of Nietzsche's life, that he truly embodies it and his embodiment of it. The, uh, the famous story of the uh, horse being whipped in the square, his embodiment of it is the revelation that is greater than the world and ultimately the revelation that killed him. How many people truly live like that in terms of a heart that is open and by heart that is open a heart that is so open that is, that is it is the cosmological whole there's just no separation um i am every name in history and you see when that statement is written by nietzsche it's written at the end. Um, and that's that's a hard thing to, to reckon with. Um, and you look at the world today and Nietzsche's world over 100 years ago, about 150 years ago now. And you can't say that in terms of a, a cultural paradigm that very much has changed. And by cultural paradigm, I mean people who are really living in that place of creative genius. And Zarathustra doesn't come down from the mountain. He, come, he comes down and the, the villagers are not capable of hearing what he has to say. And not only that, but the greatest among them are so blinded by their, by their egos. 
the greatest among them are are the ones enamored with power and control. They're the ones that are in positions of power and control. The people that inhabit institutional positions and seats because they played the game. And to encounter someone who not only has refused to play the game, but whose very creative intelligence and creative genius has drawn him so far out of it, away from it, beyond it, is, is too much for these people to bear. I think you can hear in this, uh, this talk, uh, the goddess Eris, goddess of envy, goddess of jealousy, and the kind of pettiness, the human all too humanness, which starts the wars. And I'm going to add here very briefly that Nietzsche's friendships and relationships in particular, that which could have supported him, were not there. There was, there was no one that was truly willing to stand by Nietzsche. Precisely because to stand by him would be to stand in the fire of truth. <laughs>